You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio, Virginia, USA. Chapter 9, Fate Decides. Morning brought the great apes of the jungle, scores of them. They had approached so silently through the darkness that Bentley had not heard them, and his ape's nostrils had not told his human brain the meaning of their odor. It appeared, too, that his ape's ears had tricked him, for when morning came, there were great apes everywhere. Bentley still held the wrist of ape-man, whose chest was rising and falling naturally, though the body was limp and plainly exhausted, and exuded perspiration that told of some jungle fever or other illness, perhaps, induced by hardship and overexertion. The ape's brain of ape-man had driven Bentley's body to the uttermost, and now the body must pay. Bentley wondered how far he was now from the cabin of Caleb Barter. He doubted if Ape-Man could stand the return journey, though Bentley's ape-body could have carried Ape-Man's with ease. But would Ape-Man stand the journey? Ape-Man, Bentley knew, was going into the Valley of the Shadow, and something must be done to save him. But what? And the great apes constituted a new menace, though they were making no effort to molest the three in the tree. Ape-Man must be placed in a shady place, and some attention paid to his needs. But the human body with the ape's brain could not tell how it hurt or where. The first task was to get the two beings down from the tree, and much depended upon chance. To the apes, Bentley was another ape, one, moreover, which had slain a number of them. But Ape-Man was a human being, as was Ellen Estabrook. The whole thing constituted a fine problem for the brain of Man-Ape. If Man-Ape were to attempt first aid for Ape-Man, how would such a sight react upon Ellen Estabrook? If Man-Ape were to attempt to take Ape-Man back to Caleb Barter, leading the way for Ellen, would she follow? And what would his action tell her? She would think herself demented, imagining things because a great ape did things which only human beings were supposedly capable of doing. If she knew, of course, it would make a difference. But she did not, and Bentley had no means by which to inform her. That was a problem for the future. Ellen was sleeping the sleep of utter exhaustion, and he felt that he could safely leave her for the moment while he swung ape-man down from the tree. He must work fast— and return for Ellen before the great apes discovered the helpless ape-man at the foot of the tree. He hoped to get Ellen down while she slept, knowing that she would be in mortal fear of him if she wakened and found herself in his power. Bentley got ape-man down and looked about him. No apes were close enough, as far as he could tell, to molest ape-man before Bentley could return with Ellen. He raced back to the tree, lifted Ellen so gently that she scarcely altered the even motion of her breathing, and for a moment he hesitated. So close to him were her tired lips, so woe-begone and pathetic her appearance, a great well of pity for her rose in the heart of Bentley. Or what was the seat of this emotion within him? Was the brain the seat of the emotions, or the heart? But Bentley's true heart was in ape-man's human body, so there must be some other explanation for the feeling which grew, and grew within Bentley for Ellen. He leaned forward with the intention of touching his lips to the tired, thin lips of Ellen Estabrook, then drew back in horror. How could he kiss this woman whom he loved with the gross lips of man-ape, the great ape? 
He could, of course, but suppose she wakened at his caress and saw the great figure of the jungle brute, with all man's emotions and desires, yet with none of man's restraint, bending over her? Women had gone insane over less. He hurried down with Ellen and placed her beside ape-man. By now the great apes had discovered the strange trio and were coming close to investigate. There was a huge brute who came the fastest, and seemed to be the leader of the apes, if any they had. But even this one did not offer a challenge, did not seem perturbed in the least. But he did seem filled with a childish curiosity. The apes themselves were like children, children grown to monstrous proportions, advancing and retreating, staring at this trio, darting away when ape-man or Ellen made some sort of movement. Bentley could sense, too, their curiosity where he was concerned. Their senses told them that Bentley was a great ape. Their instincts, however, made them hesitate, uncertain as to his true identity, or so Bentley imagined. Ellen still slept, but she must have sensed the near presence of potential enemies, for she was stirring fitfully, preparing to waken. What would her reaction be when she opened her eyes to see Man-Ape near her, standing guard over Ape-Man, with the jungle on all sides, filled with the lurking nightmare figures of other great apes? A moan of anguish came from Ape-Man. He stirred, and groans which seemed to rack his whole white, bruised body came forth. The brain of the ape was reacting to the suffering of Bentley's body, and a brute was whimpering with its hurts. The advancing apes came to pause. They seemed to stare at one another in amazement. They were suddenly frightened, amazed, unable to understand the thing they saw and were listening to. Bentley crouched there, watching the apes, and he fancied he could understand their sudden new hesitancy. He did not know, but he guessed, that the moans and groans of ape-man were comprehensible to the great apes. They knew that this strangely white creature was an ape, though he looked like a man. Already they had wondered as much as they were capable about man-ape. They had sensed something not simian about him which puzzled them. But from the lips of ape-man, to add to their mystification, came the groans and moans of an ape that was suffering. Bentley held his position, wondering what they would do. That they meant no harm, he was sure, else they would long since have charged and overborne the three. Unless they remembered the super-simian might of man-ape, and were afraid to attack again. Bentley hoped so, for that would make things easier for them all. Now, the nearest apes were almost beside the body of ape-man, which was still covered with agony sweat. The lips emitted moans, and faint blurs of gibberish, Bentley noted that the leading ape was a great she. The female came forward hesitantly, making strange sounds in her throat, and it seemed to Bentley that ape-man answered them, for the she came forward with the barest trace of hesitancy, stared for a moment at man-ape, with a sort of challenge in her savage little red eyes, then dropped to all fours beside ape-man, and began to lick his wounds. The she knew something of the injuries of ape-man, and was doing what instinct told her to do for him. Now the rest of the apes were all about them, and Ellen wakened with a shrill cry of terror. Bentley remained as a man turned to stone. If he moved toward the woman he loved, she would flee from him in terror, out among the other apes, and into the jungle, where she would have no slightest chance for life. If he did nothing, 
she might still run. Wildly she looked about her. She screamed again when she saw the she bending over the travesty she thought to be Bentley, and licking the poor bruised body. Ellen cast a sidelong look at Manape, and there was something distinctly placating in her eyes. She recognized Manape and wanted his friendship. What thoughts crowded her brain as she realized that she was in the center of a group of anthropoids who could have destroyed her with their fingers in a matter of seconds? She did the one thing which proved to Bentley that she was worthy of any man's love. The great she who licked the wounds of ape-man was thrice the size of Ellen. Yet Ellen crawled to ape-man, little sounds of pity in her throat. Instantly, the snarling of the she sent her back. The she had, for the time being at least, assumed proprietorship of ape-man, and was bidding Ellen keep her distance. And the she meant it, too, for she bared her fighting fangs when Ellen again approached, close enough to have touched the body of ape-man. This time the she advanced a step toward the girl, and her snarl was a terrible sound. Ellen retreated, but no further than was necessary to still that snarl in the throat of the she. Manate moved in quite close now, into position to interfere if the she tried to actually injure Ellen Estabrook. If only, Bentley thought, there was some way of making himself known to Ellen. But how could she believe, even if a way were discovered? "'What shall I do?' moaned Ellen aloud, wringing her hands. "'Poor Lee! I can't move him! That brute won't let me touch him! Oh, I'm afraid!' Bentley wanted to tell her not to be afraid, but had learned from experience that when he tried to speak, his voice was the bellowing one of a great ape. And if he were to enunciate words that Ellen could understand, what then? English, from the lips of a giant anthropoid? She would not believe, would think herself insane, and with excellent reason. Slowly, as matters were transpiring, she had already been given sufficient reason to believe that her mind was tottering. Manape stood guard over her. A she had adopted the thing she thought was Bentley, a score of great apes, which only three days ago had tried to destroy both Bentley and herself, now surrounded Bentley and Ellen with all the appearance of amity, crude, true, but unmistakable. Certainly this was sufficiently beyond all human experience to make Ellen believe she were in the throes of some awful nightmare. What would she think if an ape began to address her in English, and Bentley suddenly held speech with the great apes? Add to this possibility, suppose she were suddenly confronted with the truth, that the essential entities of Bentley and Manape had been exchanged, and the whole thing were explained to her from the gross lips of Manape himself, while Bentley looked on and chattered a challenge in ape language while Manape talked? No, at first she might have understood. Now it would have been even more horrifying for her to hear the truth. She must think what she would, and be allowed to adjust herself to the astounding state of affairs. Ape man could not be moved for some time. Ellen would not leave him naturally, nor would Manape, and the apes apparently intended to remain with them which made the problem, after all, a simple one. The trio must remain for the time being among the great apes. They needed one another in a strange way, and they needed the apes themselves, which were like a formidable army at their backs. 
as protection against the other beasts of the wild. Bentley watched the great she continue her rude first aid for Apeman. Apeman was still moaning, though less fitfully, like a child that nuzzles the milk bottle, but is drifting away into sleep. The she gave the travesty her full attention. There was something horribly human about her maternal care of this creature before her. Her great arms held Apeman close, while her tongue caressed his wounds. Bentley knew that that tongue was an excellent antiseptic, too. All animals licked their own wounds, and those wounds healed. Only human beings knew the dangers of infection, because they had departed from nature's doctrines, and had tried to cheat her with substitutes. Only the animals, like that great she, were still nature's children, healing their own wounds in nature's way. Satisfied that the apes would not molest Ellen, so long as she kept her distance from ape-man, Bentley decided to seek food, which Ellen must sorely need. The need for water was urgent, too. Bentley knew the danger of drinking water found in the jungle. But an ape could scarcely be expected to build a fire with which to boil the water, nor to produce a miracle in the shape of something to hold it in over the fire. Here were many makeshifts indicated then. Bentley smiled inwardly, the only way he could smile. He must feed himself, too. He must go wandering through the woods, feeding the body of man-ape with grubs, worms, and such nauseous provender, because it was the food to which man-ape was accustomed. Ape-man, when he was well enough to eat, would sicken the body of Bentley with the same sort of food, because the brain of ape-man would not know what was good or bad for the body of a human being, nor even would understand that his body was human. What did ape-man think of his condition anyway? That question, of course, would never be answered, unless Bardo could really speak the language of the great apes, and somehow managed to secure from ape-man, if ape-man lived, a recital of these hours in the jungle. What food should man-ape secure for Ellen? What fruits were edible? What poisonous? How could he tell? He watched the other apes, which were scattering here and there now, tipping over rocks and sticks to search for grubs and worms, to see what fruits they ate, if any. They would know what fruits to avoid. An hour passed before Bentley saw one of the brutes feed upon anything except insects. A cluster of a peculiar fruit, which looked like wild currants, but whose real name Bentley did not know. Now, feeling safe in his choice, because the ape was eating the berries with relish, Bentley searched until he found a quantity of the same berries, and bore them back to Ellen Estabrook. Beside ape-man, who now was awake and exchanging crazy gibberish with the she who had licked his wounds, Ellen Estabrook, trying to be brave, did not cry aloud, but her face was dirty, and her tears made furrows through the grime. Manape dropped the berries beside her. The she snarled as Ellen reached for the berries. Manape flung himself forward as the she strove to take the berries before Ellen could grasp them, and cuffed her over backward with a cumbersome but lightning-fast right swing. Manape, said Ellen, if only you could talk. I feel that you are my friend, and my fears are less when you are with me. I'll pretend that you can understand me. It helps a little to talk for one scarcely seems so much alone. How would you feel, I wonder, man-ape, if you were suddenly taken entirely out of the life you've always known, and forced to live in another world entirely? It would not be easy to be brave, would it? Suppose you were taken out of the wilds, 
and dropped into a ballroom. Bentley could have laughed had the jest not been such a grim one. What would Ellen think if he were to answer her? I would be much more at home in that ballroom than the thing on the ground that you love, as matters are at this moment. She would not understand that. Nor did she understand when the she went away for a time and came back with a supply of worms and grubs, which nauseous supply vanished with great speed under the wolfish appetite of ape-man. There was little wonder that Ellen found it difficult to orient herself. I must tell her somehow, thought Bentley, and that soon. Surely enough has been done to satisfy the devilish curiosity of Caleb Barter. Toward evening the apes began to drift further into the jungle. The she gathered ape-man in her arms and moved off with him. There was nothing for man-ape to do but follow, and nothing for Ellen to do but follow, too, if she loved the thing she thought was Bentley. She did not hesitate. With unfaltering courage she followed on, and the lumbering forms of the great apes drifted further away from the sea, seemingly headed towards some mutely agreed-upon jungle rendezvous. Everything depended for the time upon the return to health of ape-man. All other matters depended upon that. Each in his own way, Man-Ape and Ellen realized this. Caleb Barter had schemed better than he could possibly have foreseen. Chapter 10 Written in Dust As Ape-Man was born deeper into the jungle, in the great arms of the she, what was more natural in the circumstances than that Ellen keep close to her only remaining link with the world she had left? man-ape, the trained anthropoid of Caleb Barter. A natural thing, and one that filled man-ape with obvious pleasure. Once she touched his hand, rested her own small one in his mighty palm for a moment, and Bentley was afraid to return the pressure of her palm with the hand of man-ape, lest he crush every bone in her fingers. Thereafter, at intervals, while the whole aggregation drifted deeper into the jungle, Ellen clung to man-ape depended upon him. Was it her woman's intuition which told her that Man-Ape was a safe guardian? Bentley refused to dwell on that phase of this wild adventure, however, for there were other things to think about. It required many hours for him to discover the truth, but he knew it at last. He, Man-Ape Bentley, was the lord of the great apes. Before his capture, or before the capture of Man-Ape by Caleb Barter, Man-Ape had been leader of these apes. Now he had returned, and was their ruler once more. Upstarts had taken his place, and he had slain them. Back there, when Ape-Man had tried to escape into the jungle with Ellen in his arms. To the apes, this must have seemed the way it was. Bentley was putting things together, hoping and believing that they made four, yet not sure but that he was forcing them to equal four, when in actuality they were five or six, if Man-Ape, the original ape of Barter's capture, whose body now was Bentley's, had been the leader of the great apes, that explained why the animals remained constantly in the vicinity of Barter's dwelling. Barter had needed them in his plans, and had made certain their remaining near by making their leader captive. And, of course, only an ape sufficiently intelligent to rule other apes would have suited the evil scheme which must have been growing for years in the mind of Caleb Barter. Barter had merely waited with philosophical calmness for human beings to drift into this territory, and the Bengal Queen had obligingly gone down off the coast, 
throwing Ellen Estabrook and Lee Bentley into Barter's power. What was Barter doing now? Would he not be striving to watch the course of his experiment? Would he not think of details hitherto overlooked and plan further experiments, or an enlarging of this experiment by which three creatures were the victims? Surely Barter would not remain quietly at Barterville while the subjects of his experiment went deeper into the jungle with the great apes. Barter was too thorough a scientist for that. Somehow, Bentley was sure, Barter would know what was happening, even at this very moment. He would wish to know how a modern woman would conduct herself if suddenly forced to live among apes. Therefore, he would try in some manner to keep watch over the conduct of Ellen Estabrook. He would wonder how a modern man would conduct himself if he suddenly found himself the leader of that same group of apes, and how an ape would behave if he suddenly discovered himself a man. It was a neat experiment, and Bentley was beginning to believe that there was probably far more to it than there first had seemed. Barter would wish to know how all three creatures would conduct themselves in certain circumstances, Ape Man, Ellen, and Bentley. He would not leave it to chance, for Bentley now realized that Barter himself did not feel inimical to either Ellen, Ape Man, or Bentley. To him, they were merely an experiment. Barter would not wish for Ape Man to die, and thus deprive Barter of a certain knowledge relative to one angle of his unholy experiment. He would not wish for Manape Bentley to remain forever as Manape Bentley, lacking the power of speech, either human speech or the gibberish of the apes. No, all this was not being left to chance. Bentley believed that Barter was directing the destination of these three subjects of his, as surely as though he were right with them at this moment, driving them to his will with that awful lash which had made him feared by the great apes. Yes, Barter was still the mastermind. It made Bentley feel awfully helpless. Yet he was the leader of the great apes. That, too, Barter must have foreseen. Would Barter try in any way to discover how Bentley would behave in an emergency as leader of the apes? Would he wish to know sufficiently to create an emergency? From Bentley's knowledge of the twisted genius of Caleb Barter, he fully believed that Barter planned yet other angles to his experiment. If he did, then what would he do next? It was not until the storm broke over the strange aggregation of great apes, who seemed to be holding two white people prisoners, that Bentley understood that from the very beginning he should have been able to see the obvious denouement, the mad climax, which even then was preparing in the jungle ahead, simply waiting for the great apes to drift, feeding as they went, without a thought of danger, into the trap set for them. Ellen now kept her hand in the great palm of Manape. She wept on occasions, when she thought of the apparent hopelessness of her position, but for the most part she was brave, and Bentley grew to love her more as the hours passed, even as he grew more impatient at his inability to express his love. If he tried, he could simply frighten her, fill her with horror, because— Gentle though he was with her, and he was a great ape, a fact which nothing could change. Nor could anybody change the fact, except Caleb Barter. Where was the scientist? What would be his next move if he were not leaving the working out of his experiment entirely to chance? 
which seemed not at all in keeping with the thorough manner of his experiment thus far. The future was a dark, painful obscurity in which all things were hidden, in which anything might happen, because Caleb Barter would wish for it to happen. How long would Barter wait before making his next move, long enough for Ellen to accustom herself to life among the apes? Long enough to discover whether her natural intelligence would guide her to eke out existence among hardships such as human beings never thought of, except perhaps in nightmares? Long enough to allow the brain of Bentley to discover what miracles intellect might do with the body of man-ape? Long enough for ape-man to be well of his illness, so that he might observe what havoc an ape's brain might work with a human body? Certainly, when one gave the hideous experiment full thought, its possible angles of development, its many potential ramifications, were astounding in the extreme. Was it not up to Bentley, then, to do something besides mope and pine for the impossible, and thus hasten the hour when Barter would be wholly satisfied with his experiment? What would Ape-Man do, how would he behave, when the white body of Bentley was well again? Would that body grow well faster when guided by an ape's brain than when a human brain was in command? Certainly, Caleb Barter must have listed all these questions, and hundreds of others, which had not as yet occurred to Bentley. If he had, he would not transfer the two intelligences back to their proper places, until all of his questions were answered to his satisfaction. Bentley himself must somehow force an answer to some of them. To do this, he must try to guess what sort of questions Barter would have listed, and try to work out their answers, assuming all the time that Barter, from some undiscovered coin of vantage, would be watching for the answers he hoped his experiment would provide. Bentley arrived at a decision. Ellen must long since have become numbed to the horror which encompassed her, Bentley knew that a human brain could stand only so much, beyond which it was no longer surprised or horrified. He guessed, noting the pale face of his beloved, that Ellen had well-nigh reached that stage. He decided to take a tremendous risk with her sanity, hoping thereby to do his part in working out the details of Barter's experiment. The sun was creeping into the west, when the roving apes came to pause in a sort of clearing. Some of them curled up in sleep. The she who carried ape-man squatted with ape-man in her arms, and licked his wounds again. That ape-man was recovering was plainly evident, and when he saw, it filled Bentley with an odd mixture of thankfulness and revulsion. Ape-man was essentially an ape. With all his strength back, he would revert to type, and what if he forced the body of Bentley to do horrible things that Ellen would never be able to forget or condone, even when she at last knew the truth? What if Ape-Man selected, for example, a mate from among the hairy she's? For Ape-Man that would be natural, for Bentley horrible. Yet it might easily transpire. Ape-Man might relinquish the white she to a successful rival, which he would regard Man-Ape as being and content himself with a choice from the ape she's. Somehow, that unholy thing must not happen. That was up to man-ape, Bentley. Or, with his strength fully returned, ape-man might again desire Ellen, and force the issue with man-ape for her possession, which seemed equally horrible to the brain of Bentley. 
Ellen remained as close to ape-man as the she would permit her. Man-ape Bentley crouched close by. After a time, ape-man slept, and Bentley was pleased to notice that the agony sweat no longer beaded ape-man's body, and that ape-man was recovering with superhuman swiftness, thanks to the ministrations of the unnamed she who had taken charge of him. Ape-man now rarely groaned, sleeping or waking. Ellen watched the sleeping ape-man with her heart, and her fears, in her eyes. Satisfied that he slept, and that his sleep was healthy, Ellen again approached the creature she knew as man-ape, Barter's trained ape. "'If only you could talk,' she said to him. "'If only you were able to give some hope. If only there were some way I could cause you to understand my wishes, understand and help me.' Bentley did not answer. He knew that to be useless. But his brain remembered something. His brain recalled that moment in the cage in the dwelling of Barter, when his human brain had tried to force obedience from the great clumsy hands of Manape, when he had tried to force those mighty fingers to unfasten the knots which held the cage door secure. Could he force those hands to do something else? Did he dare try? It was a terrible risk to take with Ellen's sanity, but Bentley felt it must be taken. She was watching him hopelessly, and her lips moved as though she prayed for a miracle, as though, by some weird necromancy, she might force Manape to understand her words and to answer her, allaying her fears, destroying her hopelessness. When Ellen watched him, Bentley searched about nearby until he found a dried stick perhaps eight feet in length. He held it up, sniffed at it, fumbled it with his heavy, grotesque fingers. He focused the attention of Ellen upon that stick, while his excitement mounted and mounted, and his fear of possible consequences kept pace with his excitement. Then, his decision reached, he began again that species of hypnosis which seemed necessary to compel the hands and fingers of Manape to do things no ape's hands had ever done before, no ape's brain had ever thought of doing. He pressed one end of the stick against the ground at his sprawling feet. With his left palm, he smoothed out an area of dust several feet in either direction, a rough, dusty rectangle. Interested, her brows puckered in concentration, Ellen watched as Manape went through these gestures, which were so strangely, terribly human. Her eyes were watching the end of that twig, which the trained ape was so clumsily clutching in both hands. She saw the marks the twig made in the dust as Manape caused it to move, slowly, horribly, fearfully, from left to right across the area of dust. Fear began to grow in her face, but Bentley forced himself on. Again, the fetid owner of ape sweat covered him. This awful concentration— this awful task of forcing Manape to write English words was in itself a miracle, more miraculous even than Ellen would have thought of praying for. Her eyes were glued to the sprawling, uneven, misshapen marks in the dust with hypnotic fascination. Bentley dared not look at her, because it required all his will to force the clumsy hands of Manape to his bidding. He could only watch the marks in the dust and will with all the power of his human intelligence, that the hands of Manape make their shape sufficiently plain that Ellen might read them, 
and hope besides that this terrible thing would not send the sorely harassed girl into the jungle, madly shrieking for deliverance from a nightmare. There, the words were written, and Ellen was staring at them, her eyes wide and unblinking, her body as rigid as stone and her face as cold. Only three words were possible without an interval of rest, but those three words, among all Bentley might have selected, were the most to the point, the most unbelievable, the most black magical. I am Lee. Minutes went into eternity as Ellen stared at the words. Silence that it seemed would never be broken hung over the clearing. The bickering of the apes passed unnoticed as Ellen stared. Then, slowly, she tried to raise her eyes to meet those of Manape. She failed. Her body went limp, and she slid forward on her face in the dust. Manape Bentley gently turned her on her side and waited. What would he see in her beloved eyes when she regained consciousness? End of section 7